0: I try to condition myself to so the more certain I am about something the more I have to push back on it and and say well are there other possibilities other than the one I'm certain of here and if so what what are those possibilities you know how can we explore those uncertainty I think is is a really crucial foundation step to address this chasm that you're talking Mm -hmm. about and along those lines Curiosity Mm -hmm. is a a, a fantastic device to to work with uncertainty. What if? Mm -hmm. I wonder if this could happen, or even if I wonder if this didn't happen. If you have that sense of wonder there, now you have some possibility. Mm -hmm. Now you have some places where you can go.
1: Born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Arnold McKellis grew up in a caring, loving family, but a combination of being told they could achieve anything while witnessing his artistic mother suffering from dealing with her husband's alcoholism drove him to violence and vandalism at school, and by the age of 17, he'd become deeply involved in the white power movement and a founding member of what became the largest neo-Nazi skinhead organisation in the world. In part two, we cover Arno's path away from extremism, his recent book with Pardeep Singh Kalika, The Gift of Our Wounds, The work he is doing to promote the practice of peace, traveling, speaking, and working with all kinds of reformed extremists to confront hateful ideologies through storytelling, fearless creativity, and compassion. I hope you're inspired by the kindness, gratitude, and compassion of Arno Michaelis. Hi, Arno. Welcome back to part two. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's interesting. I heard you talk about going into McDonald's and a a lovely old African-American lady who was very kind. When you told that story... It sounded like kindness was your kryptonite, and it sowed a seed in your head. Do you think that was a defining moment that set you on the path to transformation?
0: Absolutely. I, every day of my life I'm grateful to not be who I was back then, mm-hmm. to not be bound by the, the yoke of that ideology, and kindness was kryptonite mm-hmm. to, to that way of thinking. Here I was very diligently trying to hate black people and cast them as, as these ignorant savages that are have no value to the world other than to destroy the white race in this Jewish plot. And this elderly black woman behind the counter at McDonald's who saw this the swastika tattoo in my hand and said, you're a better person than that. That's not who you are. Th- that blew all of my nonsense completely out of the water. Mm. Just that one tiny statement and, coming and, from her because I, I, oh, i'm sure your parents
1: probably said similar things to you but it didn't have the same impact
0: exactly coming from her because she should have i wanted her to be terrified of yeah me. i i wanted her to be angry at me i wanted her to hate me and rather than do that rather than play by my rules which is what i was trying to make happen mm-hmm. she said no i'm i'm not going to play by your rules these are the rules of our interaction here let me demonstrate for you this is how a human being treats another human being that that was defiance Mm. that was power that was resistance and in doing that she destroyed all this ideology I was trying to believe in destroyed everything that I, I had built about my identity was all shot down in flames by this one very genuine comment as mm-hmm. as we made icon i mean it's mandela-esque it is
1: absolutely so you wonder if, if anyone that believes in reincarnation you wonder what what higher plane she's on
0: well it's it's interesting i i do a lot of work with kids in schools and i've actually done like class-long workshops just on that story mm-hmm. where i would tell the story and then i would ask the kids put them in small groups and have them discuss like how do you think that woman came to the point where she was able to do that? Well, what was her story? How did she practice kindness to the point where it was familiar and second nature to her to where she was able to be kind to people who didn't deserve it? Because it's easy to be nice to nice people. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to be nice to assholes. Yeah, Like that's just fact of life there. But it's, it's the, the latter who, who needs that kindness more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the latter who, who where that kindness is most transformative. And in, and in my case, that woman's interaction was, was a part of my turnaround, and that's why I advocate for, for the random act of kindness nowadays. I, I really believe that the next suffering individual out there on the verge of hurting themselves or someone else, like we don't know who they are. We don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. So the more of us who practice kindness on a daily basis and make it a familiar part of our lives and, and transform the environment that we're in with that kindness, the better the odds that that person's gonna be reached.
1: And also just the, the scientific data, neurological data, and the impact that kindness and generosity has on our mental well-being. Oh, absolutely. And for community building as well. So it's it's really interesting. Could you talk about the work you're now doing today around your writing, you're obviously a prolific filmmaker, writer, public speaker,
0: and the, the focus of your life work right now. I have a, a personal mission statement that I refer to on a daily basis, and the mission statement is, I'm working towards a society where all people are valued and included. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I usually trot that out to check myself like if somebody's cocking off in the Facebook comment section and I just kind of go back at them and <laughs> say something that maybe is not as kind as it should have been, I'll ask myself, is that going to bring about a society where all people are evaluated and included? Mm-hmm. It, it, no. Okay, then. <laughs> then maybe think more. So it, it's it's a guide. It's, it's kind of a way for me to focus my energy. And I, I think it's important for human beings to have a mission statement and, and People are welcome to steal mine if they like, but whatever it is, just uh, get a, a one-sentence one kind of summary of what you're doing and what you're trying mm-hmm. to bring about. So everything I do is guided by that ideal, and um, it, it is hard to say what I do. <laughs> I don't really have a one-word job description. Mm-hmm. The, the weaver of social fabric is, is, is a bit <laughs> poetic, but uh, storyteller is really the best way to sum it up. Public speaking is kind of my bread and butter. That's where most of my income comes from, and that's what drives a lot of my travel. But with the public speaking, off of that, you, you parley into workshops, mm-hmm. you parley into one-on-one interactions with people, and uh, a lot of my one-on-one work comes from that that time after a speaking engagement where you're hanging out and talking to the audience and. People are like, well, and, and one of the most beautiful things about being a storyteller is not when somebody says, oh, well, you did this or you did that, but say, when I heard your story, I thought of this in my life. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're able to see themselves in my story. And th- that, to me, is one of like, that's where the rubber meets the road. If we're going to reach a society where all people are valued and included, we have to be familiar with and kind of be in a default state of seeing ourselves in other human beings and uh, seeing them in us.
1: Which is very much at the core of what Stephen Hecht, we talked about at the beginning, is doing with A Million mm. Peacemakers and creating empathy and putting uh, someone, each individual in the other person's shoes.
0: Exactly, mm. and, and that's, that's where the, the filmmaking and I should say my, my hero as a filmmaker is Diacon. Yeah, wonderful. Who, who we talked about, the the filmmaker behind White Right meeting the enemy and jihad and Banan's A Love Story and as a subject in the the in White Right, I met one of the most amazing human beings on the planet. And it, I'm, I'm further inspired by the fact that when she started making films, she didn't have a lick of experience. Mm-hmm. She just grabbed a camera and said, I'm going to make a film about this. And so following her footsteps, that's how I make films as well. Right. And I I recently had my first film with a budget this year, uh, which Congratulations. was five oh, grand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Healthy then. It yeah. was. It, it's a seven-minute documentary mm-hmm. called uh, Damascus Gate, which is a restaurant in Milwaukee that's run by Syrian refugees. And we had brought a bunch of high school students from Mount Horeb High School in rural Wisconsin to come have lunch at Damascus Gate, hear the stories of these refugees and what they went through to reach the United States, and to learn about Syrian culture, Middle Eastern culture, eat some amazing food.
1: Where can we watch that?
0: That, that is on the Gift of Our Wounds uh, YouTube channel. Okay. So if you go to YouTube, search Gift of Our Wounds, uh-huh. you'll find it we'll there. Find it. You can also find it at giftofourwounds.com. Uh-huh.
1: Okay. We'll definitely have to watch that and put it in show notes we're living in this media maelstrom, in a world of polarization of groups, whether it be the extreme right, the extreme left, it feels like we've got a chasm, a chasm that's opened up between the left and the right. Mm. And in that chasm, there's an opportunity for extremism to take hold. It's almost like a, a contagion. Yeah. One, how optimistic are you that we can close that chasm? And two, what work needs to be done by teachers, parents, and team leaders in organizations to confront? What can we all do? Because one man, albeit the amazing work you're doing through your writing and your filmmaking, can't confront that alone. If people are to take some direction from you, are there any simple actions people can take to, to confront this? When they see it, because all around us we're, we're experiencing it day to day.
0: I think a very simple day-to-day action that anyone can take is to say, "I don't know." To to, to introduce some uncertainty into this world where uh, certainty is is the trend. Mm-hmm. Everyone's very certain, and, and and I don't blame them. I I have my I have very strong political opinions. I when I think of them, I get very certain. I'm very certain about who I think is good and bad, and what needs to be done politically, politics wise. I try to condition myself to so the more certain I am about something, the more I have to push back on it and, and say, well, are there other possibilities other than the one I'm certain of here? And if so, what, what are those possibilities? You know, how can we explore those? Uncertainty, I think, is is a really crucial foundation step to address this chasm that you're talking mm-hmm. about. And along those lines, curiosity mm-hmm. is, is yeah. a, a, it, it's a fantastic device to, to work with uncertainty. What if? Mm-hmm. I wonder if this could happen, or even if I wonder if this didn't happen. If you have that sense of wonder there, now you have some possibility. Now mm-hmm. you have some places where you can go. And it, it, all of this is driven by story. Mm-hmm. The book Sapiens.
1: Noah Harari thank you yes
0: he makes the point in the book that besides the Industrial Revolution and the agricultural revolution in human history, prior to both of those by a good stretch 70,000 years ago there's a cognitive revolution mm-hmm. where human beings started telling each other stories and believing those stories yeah. and what that does is that allows us to organize ourselves in a limitless number of human beings. This is what differentiates us from our fellow primates. Chimpanzees, great apes, Like they're not going to organize in groups larger than 50, maybe 100 Mm -hmm. tops. But because human beings can tell stories and believe in stories, all 1.8 billion Muslims on the planet Earth all agree on the same basic story. Mm -hmm. About 99% of the people on the planet Earth agree on the story of money. We have these little cards or a piece of paper. They're worth something. You go get stuff for them. It's a story. And if everyone doesn't believe it, it doesn't work. So our day-to-day interaction with the world is created by the stories that we believe in. Mm -hmm. And I I think I love the word story because, again, there's possibility. It's not necessarily saying that's not true, but it it is just it's a story, which means you could hear another story. You could listen to another story. You might believe another story at some point. And so if if the story I believe says that a world where everyone is valued and included is a good thing and, and I'm going to work towards it, that's going to shape how I interact with the world. And conversely, if the story I believe says that I'm different and better than everybody else because of the color of my skin, that's going to shape how I interact with the world as well. Mm-hmm. So I am an optimist. I, I believe that human beings have been constantly progressing throughout our history and that it, it, in a very broad sense, being a human being at this point in time is better than any other point in the past. Mm-hmm. And again, believing that story is very transformative. And so if we ask ourselves what, where our stories are taking us and we're cognizant of that story's influence on our interactions with the world, then we're in a position to uh, do something about it.
1: Have you um, ever seen the video The State of Interdependence on YouTube?
0: I have not. Actually, there's a great book by Ethan Nicktern called uh, One City, A Declaration of Interdependence Uh that I absolutely loved. And Uh As a Buddhist, interdependence is kind of my jam.
1: When I was reading about you and, and listening to your interviews, I thought that's at the heart of where we have to drive humanity um, yeah. when you see it. Because it's all based on the premise that there's more connecting us than dividing us. Absolutely. Why? At the time when the internet was supposed to herald this great utopian vision of the future, we're all interconnected and all interdependent, it's gone the other way. Right. It's divided us. But I do believe that there's this hope for humanity, particularly given the fact we're facing very challenging times ahead. The threat of artificial intelligence is something that should be bringing us together, mm. trying to rediscover our common humanity, because that's the thing that is going to define our future when we come together and celebrate our creativity, our curiosity, and true humanity to give us purpose in life. When a lot of our purpose will, purpose will be taken away from AI, now equally, that could trigger even more extremism, with because it's going to uh, trigger stimulate fear in people, mm-hmm. in communities, particularly, and if, leaving aside, I mean, coming from the UK and what's happening over there, certainly if you look at the, the, the predictions for job losses in the future of AI, if that more dystopian future does evolve, it might fuel these extremist groups, whether it be white supremacy or Antifa. Any of these things coming up in conversation at some of the, the meetups and the, the events that you're attending?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, and I, I, I would add to that that I, human progress has always been kind of a two steps forward, one step back kind of thing.
1: Exactly. Well, that's what Stephen Pinker lays out in his book. There yeah. you go.
0: It, it's I think our most primal human fear is fear of change mm-hmm. and, and change in the sense of loss, where I'm going to lose this. I'm going to lose what I have, and it, it's uh, – like, as a Buddhist, again, change is like – it's a, it's a fact of life deal mm-hmm. with it, <laughs> like yeah. it It's so is interdependence and, and uh, celebrate those things rather than fear them but the the impact that technology has on our society I think we don't even have a clue as to how far along we are and, and how greatly it's impacted us mm-hmm. but again it is a kind of thing you guys got to submit to rather than be like oh well short of some apocalyptic like Mad Max scenario mm-hmm. the This technology is not going anywhere. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So you need to find ways to use it in a healthy way. Yeah, And I do think that we're, as a society, we are going to have to make some serious changes. Uh, I'm actually a big fan of Andrew Yang as a a Mm -hmm. presidential candidate. It it sealed the deal when a buddy of mine, Sagar and Getty, uh, who does The Hill in D.C., did a thing on Andrew Yang and said he's a race trader. (laughs) <laughs> a race trader. A race trader. Yes, because somebody had called him that to say, like he wasn't uh, as offended as he should have been at, at the the jokes about him on SNL, and I was just like, yes, yeah. I want to. I'm voting for the race trader because I'm a proud race trader myself. That was the, the slur uh. in the movement days for a white person who's not racist. Mm. But I, I think beyond that, as somebody who says, you know, my humanity is more important than this construct called race, mm-hmm. and that's where I'm coming from, instead of letting the racial construct uh, dictate how I see people and how I see uh, myself. And so that, that warmed me to Andrew Yang. But I, I do think the concept of a universal basic income, mm-hmm. I, I like the way he casts it as a, a freedom dividend, to say, hey, it's not just like free money. It's that we have this gigantic GDP. This is basically a way to distribute it amongst the people who are creating the GDP. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important for politicians to start thinking that way. I, I think he's the only one out of the field that is really offering some new, mm-hmm. exciting ideas. And we're, we're going to need to continue to do that because I, I, I think Andrew Yang is certainly right in the sense that AI and automation is going to take more and more jobs. And and it's, when I first saw the self checkouts at the grocery store or wherever, I'm just like, oh my God, people are gonna lose their jobs, blah, blah, blah. But now I'm just like, I really like them. Mm -hmm. I got my stuff, I want to go ding, 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 okay, I'm out, and and that's the the bottom line. But
1: the pace of transformation in technology is moving faster than we can keep up in terms of their investment in new types of education to help people migrate from manual, and, and not even uh, blue-collar, white-collar jobs are going to be affected by AI as well. Yeah. So we are going to hit a point where people just haven't got the, the skills to take on probably the roles. So clearly, there will be a lot of roles that open up in this new economy mm. that will need to be filled, but there'll be that skills gap. And that's where that chasm could potentially create even more um, reaction, reactionary
0: absolutely um, uh,
1: fear and anger.
0: Pardeep and I have been running a program called Serve to Unite since shortly after we met. We do arts-driven service learning and global engagement with kids from second grade through college. And Pardeep is a – talk about a renaissance man. This guy was a police officer. He was a certified high school teacher. He is a certified mental health uh, professional therapist. He is a published author, and now he's the executive director of the Milwaukee Interfaith Conference. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but with his educational background, Party makes this this very, very important point that we really, really need to understand with a quickness: is that Party's in his forties. I'm forty-eight. When when we were kids, and we got an assignment in school, go write a report on the Civil War. You go to the library, you find you know a few books on the Civil War, and then you have to extrapolate. Mm-hmm. You have to expand this relatively small amount of information you got on that subject into your report. Nowadays, literally with their phone like this, A kid can be like, Civil War, boom, I have 20 million pages about the Civil War now. Mm -hmm. And so their job is not to extrapolate and expand on this knowledge. It's to somehow make sense of this ridiculous amount of data they have. And it's about critical thinking. Mm -hmm. It's about self-reflection and socio-emotional thinking and learning. Yet... Our schools, and it's changing slowly, but I, I agree, it needs to be a lot faster. Our schools are still about taking tests mm, and looking at Encyclopedia Britannica. like It's, it, it, it's this like, decades-old model that is so outdated. And one of the, the most heartbreaking things I've seen in public schools all over the United States is this this obsession with the test-taking. And I don't know how many times, hey... Can you come work with our students? Okay, well, how about this week? Oh, we're testing all that week. Nothing happens that week except for the testing. And the rest mm-hmm. of the year, they're just like, they're prepping for this test.
1: It's, it's interesting. You mentioned Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens. Yes. Uh, his other couple of books are definitely, if you haven't read them, uh, you should dive into them. Uh, his latest one which, where he talks about education that mm. children need. So it's critical thinking, yep. communication, collaboration, creativity. And that, in a sense, is what you're highlighting is needed in that education. We have a question we sometimes ask guests about if they were given the keys to the mayor's office or the White House, what they would do to change the fortunes of the youth today through educational policy. But I think you've sort of uh, alluded to the things that you'd be doing.
0: Socio-emotional learning Mm -hmm. is essential. To paraphrase the Dalai Lama, he said if we taught every eight-year-old in the world to meditate, we'd have world peace in a generation. Yeah. So there are a lot
1: of schools in the UK doing that,
0: and in the states mm-hmm. as well. It's very much catching on as as neuroscience has like said, well, hey, this thing that these Buddhists have been doing for two thousand five hundred years actually like shapes your your mind the way that working out in a gym shapes your body. Mm-hmm. So let's start having that as well as gym class in schools. And and it's great that it's catching on. I I think it needs to be given more time and attention than it is already. And if we do that, I I don't think there's a problem we can't solve. Because what meditation does is it creates inner peace. Mm-hmm. And inner peace is where everything starts. You can't yeah. have outer peace when you don't have inner peace. Mm-hmm. And so starting at that foundational place, if as we raise children with a, a healthy sense of inner peace and a practice to maintain it, I don't think there's any problem or challenge that humanity can't uh, answer
1: just a bit of a shame and your rampant curiosity as an eight-year-old you didn't discover a meditation book in the library when no one else had <laughs> it, might have, it might have triggered a slightly different journey it
0: absolutely
1: would have yeah and everyone's going what are you doing and i'm like i don't none of your business it's mine <laughs>
0: right right stay it, out it would have worked because no one else was doing exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah i, yeah, I, I would have been day. all about it
1: yeah way ahead of the curve yeah yeah now you've been now oh, yeah, look at everyone now yeah. <laughs> Anyway, we always like to ask about serendipity and explore happy accidents, mm. uh, the serendipitous events occurred that may have defined and changed the direction of your journey. Could you maybe reflect on that for a moment?
0: Yeah, I. it brings to mind a talk I did at Fox Lake Prison in Wisconsin. It was the longest talk I've ever done. It was about four hours and we were doing the Q&A. It was literally a captive audience. I, I was kind of intimidated going in there the first time because I— I've been arrested a lot. I've spent like a week, weekends in jail. I've never been incarcerated. So I'm like, who am I to come tell these guys anything? Mm -hmm. But as I I got there and and started telling stories, I started feeling comfortable. I I had a group of about uh, 40 inmates and maybe 20 staff around. And as I, anytime I'm doing a talk, I'm scanning the audience and trying to make eye contact with everybody in the process because I want to see if they're engaged, Mm -hmm. And in this sense, I had the whole audience engaged pretty quickly except for three people. Two of them were these white guys off to the side who had kind of self-segregated themselves from the rest of the audience and they had their arms crossed. Were they all
1: white or the mixed?
0: Well, no, the inmates were, it was uh, a mix. Mm -hmm. The the whole group was very diverse. But the, the two white guys had segregated themselves and they're looking at me with arms crossed and they're scowling. And in my head, I'm like, these guys are like Aryan Brotherhood or something. They're going to come stab me like they hate me off the bat. And then immediately in front of me was a black man who was just like he was carved of stone. He he had no expression on his face. He didn't blink the entire four-hour talk. (laughs) Not that I could notice. And, And he had this real intensity. About him, he's just like locked onto me and he's about three, four feet sitting in front of me and he's just not moving. He's not reacting at all. And I was kind of unsettled by it. And as I go on in the talk about a half hour in, like even the salty white guys are starting to get into it. Like I can see them, one of them cracks a smile or one of them kind of gasps and I can be like, oh, they're engaged now. The guy in front of me is not. He he doesn't move. <laughs> doesn't blink. I don't know if he's breathing, but he he was very much alive. Like mm-hmm. he had this intensity that you could just. It was palpable. And so I I got done with telling my story for about three hours, and I'm like, so does anybody have any questions? And the guy right in front of me, his hand goes up right away. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, Um, yes sir. What what question can I answer for you? He's like. First of all, I want you to—I want to thank you for sharing your story. My father was an alcoholic too, and I can identify with a lot of what you said. <laughs> i was like, wow! Wow. He—he—he's—he actually—he like, was probably getting my story better than anybody else. He was more like in tune to it. And then he went on to ask. He said, "Would you say that God had a hand in your turnaround?" And I was like, "Wow, that's an awesome <laughs> question." And, and I thought about it, and I'm like. You know, Buddhists are like any other big religion. There's all there's all sorts of flavors of them. And there's some Buddhists who get into all kinds of mystical stuff and demons and goddesses and whatnot. And then there's other Buddhists like me who are just more of a science. Like, this is just about studying how our minds work and how the world works and how compassion works and things like that. And I'm definitely of that latter camp. I'm mm-hmm. not into, like, a lot of supernatural things. But I I said, all that being said... Looking at my life and telling stories about it, which is what I do for a living, I see time and time and time and time and time again where serendipity has shaped where I'm at, has shaped my path and led me to where I am. Mm-hmm. So considering all this the planets that had to align to lead me out of the white nationalist movement, it would be very fair to say that God had a hand in that. Mm-hmm. Because if we're going back to the the elderly woman at McDonald's, yeah. Or the, the Jewish boss I had who, rather than fire me for wearing a swastika to his factory, he said, ah, he's a good kid. He's just going through a phase. Mm. Or the lesbian supervisor I had who knew that I hated gay people, but she also liked punk rock, and she would sit with me at break time when no one else would sit with me. And she would, I don't like smoking at all. Smoking's bad kids. But she used to give me cigarettes, when I didn't have cigarettes. And like all these, these serendipitous acts of mm. kindness, then leading out throughout this process and after the movement uh mm-hmm. happening to have a friend who goes to rave parties on the south side of chicago and i i happened to go with him one night like all these things that, that fall into place like that mm-hmm. i think it would be hard to make a case for it that didn't yeah. involve some kind of higher power
1: wow that's some story quick for our questions
0: what principles do you stand by gratitude Kindness and forgiveness and compassion; those I, I think are my principles that guide my life. Perfect collection.
1: What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision in the end?
0: Yeah, the big decisions in my life was de- deciding to have a child, mm-hmm. which was decided from white nationalists. It, it was my duty to have white children as a white man. Mm-hmm. I, so I didn't it wasn't like the most thoughtful decision but that decision like sparked everything else Be, being a father, having my daughter got me out of the white supremacist movement mm-hmm. it made me quit selling drugs when I was selling drugs in the rave scene. Yeah. It was a big factor in me quitting drinking and quitting smoking cigarettes mm-hmm. so th- those are all were, were difficult decisions but ones that I, I am grateful for every single day.
1: Mm-hmm. Where do you go to discover new ideas?
0: Hmm. I like to get outside my comfort zone and outside of places that I've been and and experience new places and talk to new people. And I I think that's where a lot of my ideas come from. Mm-hmm. And confronting your certainty. Exactly. Yeah, great, tra- we,
1: had, we had a guest, uh, <laughs> I think it was Beth Comstock, who used to be vice chair of GE, and she said uh, this great quote which was about You have to be comfortable in ambiguity for to be successful in the future. And I think I've always hung on to that. I think it's a great line.
0: There's another uh, brilliant neuroscientist named Bo Lotto. He wrote a book called Deviate. And it's all about how literally perception is reality. Mm -hmm. Without perception, there is no reality, vice versa. But he talks about if you're going to get someone to go from point A to point B, the first step has to be not A. Yeah, (laughs) You don't just instantly go to B. You have to somehow get them to be not A. And and to do that, you you need to address that certainty.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's great. I'll take a note of that book. What is your perspective on failure?
0: Well, I, I'm awful good at failure. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. I wholeheartedly believe that there is zero success without yeah. failure. Yeah. And the whole, you know, Silicon Valley fail first kind of thing. There's a lot of wisdom to that. I, I think not being afraid to fail is is a key. And I think the the fear of failure is is what holds far too many people back in life. Who have you met this most surprised you? I think I, I I'm thinking of a, a trait actually, and I've I'm in an amazing group called the Forgiveness Project. Uh-huh. People can find it at theforgivenessproject.com, and it's just hundreds of stories of forgiveness in every possible angle and aspect you can imagine. And in, in the stories, I, I've, I'm i so fortunate to call many of the people in these stories peers and friends and colleagues and teachers, and I, I love many of them dearly. I was just in Berlin with Bassam and Salwa Aramin and Rami Elhamin and Rami is an uh, Israeli man whose daughter was killed by a Palestinian militants bomb, and Bassam and Salwa are Palestinian, and their daughter was killed by an Israeli soldier. Hmm. So I'm I'm having lunch with, and I've known Bassam for a while, and he's just one of my favorite people on the planet. I just met Rami and Salwa, and I'm having lunch with them, and we're like, it's gut-busting laughter the entire time. Like, it just, <laughs> it just, I, I, it, it blows my mind how, how funny these people were. And I'm just like, I know these people because their daughters were murdered. Like, yeah. and, that, it, it, and, I, and I could go down the list. Mm-hmm. Party is one of the funniest people I've ever met. Sharon Risher, who I mentioned earlier, lost her mother, Ethel, and, and Emmanuel Amy. Sharon and I have hung out where we're literally slapping each other's <laughs> knees, like, laughing so hard. And so I, I think... Um, I, I'd be hard pressed to pick any one specific person mm-hmm. but just the, the, the truth that these people who have been through some of the most horrific things you could imagine a human being have to go through still have, not just have a sense of humor but have like the, the most amazing sense of humor you've ever seen mm-hmm. and, and if that doesn't maintain your faith in humanity I don't know what will yeah that's true
1: maybe a, a line to that is uh, who's made you reevaluate yourself
0: Pardeep Kalika is, is the first person to think of. Um, the second person I think of would be my daughter. Mm-hmm. My daughter's name is Inga. Mm-hmm. And on a, on a daily basis, my relationship with those two mm-hmm. has challenged me to look at what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. And, and is this the, the best path? And it, it, they both create a lot of uncertainty. <laughs> and for that, I'm, I'm uh, super grateful. Okay. Uh,
1: how do you keep up with technology? I mean, you do work in the in the technology <laughs> space, so. <laughs> I oh, do your, your day job.
0: I, I do keep up, and uh, again, I, I think what keeps me up with technology is story. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's such an amazing to me. Technology is it's they're just vectors to tell stories. Mm-hmm and with all the, the new ones that are popping up daily and, and the, the reach and the nature of the old ones expanding, to me it's incredibly exciting and I welcome it. Okay.
1: We have this impossible question. What would your advice be to someone who's about to graduate, go to study, or might have a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but has been told, forget it, it's impossible?
0: <laughs> My advice is uh, bravery is possibility. I've worked with a lot of kids in the inner city and Milwaukee especially and South side of Chicago actually. But at and, and first all, I have to say like, I have no idea what it's like to, to live the lives that these kids mm-hmm. leave because they, they deal with challenges every day that would just crush me mm-hmm. and crush most people. But at the same time, these kids are like, you don't understand. I have to fight mm-hmm. when I got to walk six blocks to school. I, I can't even get to school without fighting. And the, bravery as possibility comes to mind mm-hmm. to say well if you have the courage to believe that there is a possibility other than fighting that that, that bravery will bring you there so uh bravery creates possibility where you where you feel there's none that's brilliant. Oh,
1: no one has ever said no, that. It's no, it's really, r- it's really good.
0: Yeah. I, in all due credit, I, uh, je- I first heard that term from uh, Sakyong Mipham Rinpoche, mm. who's the spiritual leader of the Shambhala lineage mm. of Buddhism, which is my spiritual jam. So. <laughs> okay. will right.
1: we'll get the spelling for that. And put it in the show notes. There you go. Um. We have this. We added this question recently, which is, what's, what, what is one
0: big problem worth solving? If I could solve one big problem, it would be separatism. Mm-hmm. I, I think separatism is the root of all the other isms. Yeah, you, you can't have racism without separatism. You can't have sexism, et cetera, all down the line. And again, that comes back to seeing ourselves and others. Yeah. So if I could solve one problem, it would be that. And I think that all the other problems would solve themselves. Totally agree.
1: Yeah. If you could return to one night or day in history, where, when,
0: and who. Huh. This is kind of a, a I, I think it'd be a common one. But I, I'm reminded of this by my mom who um, like all old people will forward you know, the forward, forward, forward emails. <laughs> <laughs> but she had one uh, that, that as an artist like spoke to me and, and to her, but it was a old I have a hard time saying this word without being triggered. It was a PowerPoint presentation. Mm-hmm. Just slide after slide of these paintings. And some were landscapes and some were people, some were dogs. And some of them were really good. The landscapes were, were impressive. The dogs and people, are like, yeah, it needs a little work. And you look through these 20 or so slides, and then the last slide says this was a portfolio of an aspiring art student that he submitted to the Vienna School of Fine Arts. And then the, you know where this is going. Yeah. The next slide says his name was Adolf Hitler. <gasps> so if I could go back to one day and I would be like, you know what let's let's accept this kid mm-hmm. let's let him study art yeah. mm-hmm. and and how much could that have changed uh, the course of human history? Mm-hmm. In in reality, Hitler was royally messed up. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) going to art school would not just have solved all his problems. Maybe things would have ended up as they were. We don't know. But to me, the the theme is— To nudge history in the right direction might have been a good thing to do. If you can give someone—and that's why Served to Unite is so important to me in storytelling, is if you can, especially for younger people, if you can uh, give someone a way to connect with their passions and cultivate it— and try to channel it in a healthy direction, that's uh, incredibly transformative.
1: Okay, bit of fun. What's your go-to karaoke song?
0: Go-to karaoke song is uh, Highway to Hell by ACDC. I like it, nice one. And... I have to add a punk song. (laughs) No, the other one is uh, Desperado by the Eagles. Oh, lovely, yeah. Yeah. Which, oh. and I, I, I can't do the Highway to Hell like I used to because I get migraines when I really like belt it out more Bon Scott than um, <laughs> I'm definitely all Bon Scott, bon Scott yeah. yeah he was just so he was, he grimy was he, was else, yeah. <laughs> he was amazing Yeah, yeah. yeah. mine
1: might be uh, if I were an ACDC song it would be Back in Black
0: there you go oh, that's great too Brian Johnson's excellent yeah. if you're going to like re- try to replace Bon Scott that's a pretty tall order pretty well. and I think he did pretty well but yeah I'm, I'm a Bon Scott guy yeah
1: okay We've talked about obviously your work and also the filmmaker you mentioned, the lovely woman uh, Dia Dia Khan. Dia Khan. Yeah. But besides that, any recent Netflix, Amazon series or
0: film that you would want our guests to watch? I am so late to the party on so many things. Right now, I'm watching Dexter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my my mom and my daughter were like, "Well, you're just watching Dexter now." And I'm like, "I'm sorry." "Surely just... you've seen Breaking Bad." Yeah, you, I saw Bre- Breaking Bad's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Vince Gilligan is amazing. I'm an old X-Files mm-hmm. fan, but yeah, Breaking Bad's fantastic. I I love Dexter. One of my other favorite series, which I think did not get as much love as it should have was Tom Hardy's Taboo. Oh, That just blew my mind. I I hope there's going to be a second season Mm. for that. But there's so much amazing content nowadays. It's intimidating. But it's 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 a beautiful thing because mm. it's, I think, today, more than any other point in human history, there is more opportunity for creatives than there has ever been. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally go along with that. What book would you like us to offer the three listeners that submit the best comments on the comment section besides yours?
0: Besides mine, I would like you to offer uh, Sharon Richers for a time such as this, Hope and Forgiveness After the Charleston Massacre. Okay. It's fantastic. All right. I took a note of that earlier anyway, so that's good. Cool. And finally, who should we infuse next? Just because I haven't mentioned him yet, I'm going to say Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is a black uh, rock and roll blues musician who was dear friends with Chuck Berry and Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, all these guys. He's just an amazing piano player, but he's also, over the past uh, 30, 40 years, has made a practice of walking up to people in the Ku Klux Klan or in neo-Nazi groups and just saying, hey, how you doing? My name is Daryl. i just like to know, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? I think I've seen him.
1: Yeah. I've seen films of him do this. He's brilliant. There's a great
0: yeah. documentary on him called Accidental Courtesy, uh, and over the years he's gotten hundreds of people to leave these groups. He's a dear friend of mine. We've done a lot of speaking engagements together, and aside from getting to see him rock the piano, which is always blows my mind, it, the other part of his talk, which I never gets old, is that he, he brings this clanhood out of a... Uh, Bag along with the robe, and it was one that was given to him by an imperial wizard who was this national leader of a clan group. And the guy not only gave Daryl his hood and robe, but he made him the godfather of his white daughter. So it's Daryl is is a is a hero of mine. I I think his story is what society needs so badly, and he's 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 amazing. He's one of the the funnest people I've ever hung out with. Uh, He's an amazing interview. And um, I just saw him in Venice, Italy, where I was with a, a cadre of people working on countering violent extremism through arts and culture. And uh, I'm going to see Daryl this evening.
1: Did well, you, maybe I have to sort of swing by and yeah, make the introduction. Yeah, there you go. There good.
0: you go. I'd be happy to.
1: Okay. Before I wrap up, is there any question that we should have asked you but didn't?
0: Yeah, okay, this is last week uh Pardeep and I did a talk at Catholic Financial Life in Milwaukee. We do a lot of corporate stuff and I, I love doing that actually. I think the workplace is, is as important as schools to yeah. for people to really like examine the stories that are driving them. And one of the questions whenever we do QA, I always say, Nothing's off limits. Give us give me something challenging and, and give me a question I've never heard. And that's difficult because I've heard a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and there was one gentleman in the audience, and he goes, "Hey, I got uh, two little kids, and I just w- would like to know, like, w- what should I do as a parent to help keep them on a healthy path, and and help to have them grow up to not be uh, white nationalist skinheads?" <laughs> and I was like. I think the greatest gift that a parent can give a child is their own genuine happiness, mm-hmm. and not like, oh, I'm happy I got a BMW and I'm spending the summer in San Tropez or whatever. But happy is in kindness, gratitude, and forgiveness are daily practices for me, and I'm very familiar with those things. And those are the three ingredients of human happiness. Mm-hmm. So if if a parent is dialed in to those qualities. And they are genuinely happy, and they have a genuine sense of inner peace. Mm-hmm. That's the best gift that you can give your child, and, and not to mention yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, I I think uh, that that's one of my favorite questions I've gotten recently. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and that's very true. Going back to what you where you described the relationship with your mother, and that led to your anger.
0: And and yeah, it, it's my parents got divorced when I was eighteen, mm-hmm. and uh, I was like, yeah, they got divorced eighteen years too late. Mm-hmm. They they were the kind of parents who were like we're gonna to stay together for the kids' sake, and I I mean it's it's a very admirable noble gesture, mm-hmm. but I, I think ultimately it's it's harmful to the parents and to the kids and they're and I I said this at Catholic Financial Life and I'm like I'm sorry Catholics but get mm-hmm. a divorce <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it's not working out get a divorce and. The, the CEO there's like, "Oh it's okay for Catholics to get divorced. yeah, I, I think two happy parents separate are, are far better than two miserable parents together mm-hmm. and and that that happiness is what shapes a child's life more mm-hmm. than anything and, and all this being said, there, there was plenty of happiness in my childhood. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it was idyllic in many, many ways. Oh, being
1: play. For you, must have been great fun because you were given free <laughs> reign to do whatever you wanted. It was. <laughs> I can yeah. imagine some of the scrapes you got into before well,
0: you... I When I talk about my dad's drinking, I always say, well, he wasn't like a mean drunk. He was like yeah. a fun drunk. When my dad was drunk, we were going to shoot guns and light off fireworks. And what I do is talk with party, parties like, that's not normal, kids. <laughs> 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 but to me, it, it was great fun as a kid. Fireworks everywhere, pistol range in the basement, like... <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right. And well, just to wrap up, Arno, I have to thank you very much for your time. I acknowledge you just for your the mission you're on, your energy, your amazing sense of humor. Your focus on transformation is enviable. And for your commitment to kindness, gratitude and forgiveness. It's inspiring. And I just think that if more people could embrace the values you're living by now, we would be in a healthier Uh, more transformed world. So thank you again for embracing uncertainty and not the certainty that all of us, in fairness to say, do gravitate towards, particularly when we watch the news cycle at the moment. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: And just for your compassion and commitment to change. So thank you very, very much.
0: Thank you, Mark. I, I appreciate that. I, the questions are very thoughtful. really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, most importantly, I'm grateful to everyone here in the room and everyone who's listening because listening to people, listening to anyone is, is a fantastic gift. And so I, the gift you've given me is very, very special. Well, You've given us a gift as well, so thank you very much.
1: Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe, and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at Network.